Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Um, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to talk. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's really interesting to see how Buddhism is flourishing in America because uh, it's not this cool in Australia. We're a bit smaller, you see, our population. There's more sheep than people. Um, so I never... Uh, I'm Aya Yeshe, and I never intended to end up living in a Buddhist temple in a slum in India. But it just happened that way. This lion came to me today. Uh, after you meditate, you have to open your eyes. You know? And when you open your eyes, when you have a sense of the infinite, when you have a sense of inspiration, of the big picture, of interconnectedness, interbeing, the deeper you go in your practice, the more you understand that we are in fact interconnected, that our practice is not just about us, you know, because the pain that we carry in our heart is not just our pain. And happiness is not just a personal matter, it's a communal matter. Because even this very body that we enjoy, the fact that we can see a sunset, attend a meditation retreat, embrace the one we love, have our own children, is because our mother gave us a human body. So even this, our very existence was given to us by others. You know? And the food we eat is grown by others. The houses we live in were built by others. Even the fact we can sign our own name comes from someone patiently teaching us. The fact that, we, that women can vote. You know, women went to jail. Women were beaten. Women were run over by horses so that we could vote, so that we could own land. So everything we have comes from others. And if we really practice in a good way, we should open our heart and see interconnectedness, interbeing, that this I, this I is simply a label on a group of non-me elements. There are many non-me elements. And a person who sees the non-me elements like the sun, the rain, my mother, the, that person uh, is moved by compassion to do something to alleviate the suffering of others. That person is what we call an aspiring bodhisattva. Um, and I think in Buddhism, I think Bhikkhu Bodhi said it really well when he said, you know, um, Buddhism shouldn't just be a congenial home for upper white middle class people who want to deal with their existential crisis. It's gone beyond that point. The world has gone beyond that point. Um, and we need to stand up. Of course, without wisdom, without skillful means, without insight, without contemplation, standing up in a skillful and sustainable way is not possible, and you'll burn out. So um, one of my teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, said, you know, in my time, uh, monks and nuns stayed in the monastery, and we didn't go out a lot. People came to us. But when the Americans started dropping bombs on us 
and the, com- uh, the communists came at night to interrogate us and villages started catching on fire and monks and nuns set themselves on fire to have their message heard. We had to come out of the monastery and we thought, should we meditate or should we come out of the monastery? And he said, in fact, we need to do both. We need to practice in our true home, the present moment, but we also need to take our practice into the world. And I don't just mean setting your watch to chime in your morning tea break. Because today, 30,000 children died. The only difference is they're not our children, they're not white children. They don't have a piece of paper saying American. But is their life any less valuable than our own children's life? Don't their mothers love them and want the world for them? Don't they want to live in peace and security? just because they have a different piece of paper. But their skin, their uh, blood is red and their tears are salty. And they want to live and they want to have a good life. So um, I, uh, I ordained at the age of 23. I left home at 15 and searched for the meaning of life. And that's another story. Um, but I, I hit the, the, the Buddhist glass ceiling pretty quickly. Like most of my generation didn't really care about women's rights or equality because we thought we had it. But, you know, when a lama lama, uh, told me, pray to be reborn as a man because you can't become a Buddha. And um, like the Western monastics uh, were were charged rent to stay in the temple, but the Tibetan men sat on the throne and stayed for free. And uh, one day I asked... In fact, there is only two centers in the world where Western monastics are not charged to stay in Tibetan Buddhism, and we have a 75% disrobing rate. And one day I asked at a center, one of the biggest centers in Nepal, uh, why do you charge us? You know, we actually donated this temple to you. This temple was donated by a Western nun. And he said, why should we support you? You're just a tourist. Um, So I hit patriarchy pretty quickly, and I realized... The Buddha's original idea was radical, was liberating, like so many spiritual paths start out in their genesis. But it is then appropriated by the powers that be and becomes a mechanism for the state to keep, um, to keep the powerful in power. So we have to separate what is you know, cultural baggage and what is liberating dharma. Um, so I couldn't really make a go of it at the Buddhist center because I, I, I ordained and one day later I took off my robes and I went to work in a lay job and I neither had the benefits of being a lay person, the freedom, nor did I have the beauty of uh, being able to meditate full time. So, and you know, the Tibetans then, it's not like they're totally heartless. They lost their country. They had to preserve their culture. Um, they've had a hard time, you know, but 50 years have passed. They're, they're well established now. So there's really no excuse to continue um, to not take the obligation that a teacher has to train and support their students. And I noticed that women um, participate in, uh, you know, inequality as much as men in the sense that they support teachers who don't support women. And I think we have to, seeing as the majority of um, often in Buddhist centers are women, we have to start looking at 
why we say, oh, we don't have Buddhist women teachers, but it it has to be because we're not supporting them. You know, so we really need your help. Western monastics need your help. It's a fourfold sangha. We're not a threat to each other. We're a family, and only can Buddhism become strong in that way. But anyway, getting on to the point. Um, so I left Australia, and I decided to live on faith. And everybody thought I was nuts. Um, but my bowl has never been empty. Even though I've really had a hard time, and I can't, I still can't afford. After 16 years as a nun, I can't afford to rent a room in my own city. Um, so I went to India, and I thought maybe it'll be easier there. But of course, it wasn't. I had to learn Tibetan. I had to be Tibetan. I had to be better than a Tibetan, <laughs> and preferably a man. <laughs> um, so after studying philosophy for many years, you know, people always talking about compassion, compassion, compassion. And I'm like, when are we going to do compassion? And I was in Bodh Gaya, um, which is, if anyone has been there, they know it's like the intersection of heaven and hell. And it's the most corrupt and poor state of India where girls are married at 13, pop out 10 kids and dead by 45 and the local people make more money begging in front of the Mahabodhi temple than they do farming or working in a brick factory. So I was there, and I was thinking, you know, the Buddha gave us... Like, I, I was struck by... Inside the Mahabodhi temple, it's a sanctuary of peace where the Buddha got enlightened. But then you see this black arm coming through the fence, this skinny black arm with a bowl, crying out, I'm hungry, I thirst. You know? And I can never forget that that those people are Indian, the Buddha was Indian, the Buddha gave us this amazing liberating Dharma. And what are we doing for his people? We have these international Buddhist temples, these enclaves of marble and air conditioning with a gold roof and a six-foot-high barbed wire fence out the front. And I thought, if the Buddha was here, which side of the fence would he be on? You know. And just as I was thinking I should help Indian people, uh, an Indian man from the Dalit community which is one of the poorest and least known Buddhist communities in the world. Yeah, broken people. But it's a term that they've appropriated to empower themselves. Um, he told me about um, Dr. Ambedkar, who's like the Martin Luther King Jr. of his people, and how in 1956 several hundred thousand people converted to escape the Hindu caste system, which had oppressed them as slaves for thousands of years. In fact, a few hundred years ago, they had to tie a palm leaf behind them to wash away their footprints and carry a jar around their neck to capture their spit. They had to beg for someone to give them water, and they worked for nothing on land. Their women were raped, their men were lynched. Um, and, you know, it's not just... Caste is not pernicious. It's not just like a class system, because if you're a Muslim or a Christian, you go into the temple... And you're equal in the eyes of God. But in the Hinduism, not, not even in the eyes of God are you equal. Because you're told, it's your bad karma. You came from the feet of God. Follow your dharma. And, uh, you know, do what we say. And maybe in the next life, if you're lucky, you might not be born a Dalit. So you're even cursed by God. And I'm not saying that all of Hinduism is bad, but I'm saying this aspect of Hinduism, which, which is complex, is certainly not a good thing. And many people have suffered because of it. 
So doc, uh, Dr. Ambedkar was the first Dalit to get an education. Uh, he was born the 14th child in a mud brick f- house. And he sat outside the classroom because the high caste children refused to. They thought they'd be polluted by him. But he was the brightest child in the class. And he won a scholarship to study overseas, to study in Columbia University and to study in England, economics and law. And he came back and he still experienced discrimination. He couldn't find a place to rent. People would pass him files, throwing them along the floor because they didn't want to touch him. And so he started a non-violent revolution to emancipate the Dalit community. And he said, our struggle is not just for material things, but it is to reclaim the spirit of human dignity. And um, he, made, he was invited to draft the Indian constitution, which outlawed discrimination. But of course, laws in India are very elastic. Um, and un- unless people enforce them, they don't mean a lot. So, uh, you know, but India is not just slums. India is not just poverty and misery. India has the second fastest growing economy in the world, an amazing history, beautiful cultural monuments, incredible cultural diversity. It's just that I work in this particular field. So this is what, this is my, you know, this is what I'm sharing. But it's still a huge problem. Um, The majority of the young people in the world live in India. One in five people in the world is Indian. 20% of, 22% of girls in India are married below the age of 18. Uh, There is more uh, malnutrition in India than in sub-Saharan Africa. Because it's not, it's not because they don't have enough to eat, it's because of the bad sanitation. Girls are um, about 50% more likely to die under the age of five simply for being a girl. In the last 50 years, 50, uh, 50 million girl babies have been aborted simply for being girls or being uh, in China and India, gender side. You know, because a girl um, can bankrupt the family, they're considered a thief at the table because their marriage is very expensive. Um, and whereas the boy will stay with the family. And if you have a lot of mouths to feed, you're going to feed the one first that will support you in your old age. It's not that there is, that every uh, Indian, you know, that they're heartless or anything. It's just that they're extremely desperate, you know. Um, But the good thing is, the good news is that it can change. Uh, One more year, and the way to change this cycle of poverty which is basically the same story in every developing country. Um, 70% of the world's poor are women. Women do 60% of the world's work and own 10% of the world's land. They earn, even in developed countries, in developed countries they earn 20% less than men. I can't even imagine how much less it is in developing countries because you'll see these women working in the field and a man holding a chai and you ask the man, what are you doing? And he'll say, I'm a farmer. And you ask the woman, she'll say, I do nothing, I'm a housewife but she's actually doing all the hard work inside the house and outside, but her inside work is not valued. Um, But one more year of high school for a girl can increase her wage by 20%. And an educated mother gives birth to educated children. Her child is like something like 30% more likely to survive. She's going to have less children. She's going to have them later in life. So if you want to control the population, if you care about the planet, give a girl a school uniform. It's the best form of birth control. Um, And in our program, uh, we have a women's job training center because if a woman has her own money, she can walk away from domestic violence. She can make choices about her life. 
statistically, if you give a woman in a developing country income, 90% of it will go to her children, medicine and education. If you give it to a man, if you increase, if you give him a salary increase in a developing country where he's in a dead-end job and he's under a lot of pressure, these are good men, they're just in bad situation, but they have more social freedom to do social evil. <laughs> uh, so that money you know, will not necessarily go all to the family. Some of it will go to alcohol, movies, cigarettes, whatever. But the women, it'll go straight to the kids. So that's why we empower women, apart from the fact that they have less education. So we have a women's job training centre where we train them in sewing, computers, beauty therapies um, and English. And these are jobs they can do from home uh, on their own terms when they watch their kids. And then we have an, uh, a girls' hostel for adolescent girls. Um, adolescent girls are particularly in danger of child marriage and we want to, change, to train some change makers to do a three-year university course in healthcare or social work. We also train them in self-defence and we train them to teach other women sewing and beauty therapies. So they've signed a contract that they will go back to the place that they came from and they will teach women about their legal rights. They will train them in jobs so that one girl can become an agent of change for hundreds of other women. And uh, one of the girls in our hostel who's 15 said... Um, my mother is a sex worker, um, and I know that if you hadn't taken me, I would also be doing that by now, a 15-year-old girl. Um, another girl is 14. Her father died of uh, tuberculosis and alcoholism. Um, her mother was in, in, in agreements with a man, talking, a 40-year-old man, talking about marriage because she really couldn't feed her children. So... And she's working, you know, these are working. It's not that they're lazy, they just don't make enough. They're sewing our clothes, they're wiping our floors, and they don't make enough to survive. Um, so we put this girl in our, in our hostel, and she's topping her class, she's learning classical dance, she's safe, and she has a future, which every child deserves. Uh, and this is possible for $30 a month. That's the price of a cappuccino a day. You know, every, every person can do that. Can, everyone can help someone. So you may not feel that you have a lot of money. And if you don't have a lot of money, you can share the message on Facebook. You can invest your skills. You know, a lot of NGOs need people with skills. There is always a way to help someone, even if you just listen to a friend. But the time has come for us to do more than just be navel gazers. We have to find that peace inside. We have to return to the present moment to our true home. But we also have to take the benefits that we have received from this great Indian <laughs> and pay it back, pay it forward. Because uh, half the world is living on $2.25 a day and six, uh, half the world's wealth is in the hands of 60 people and around 40 of them are American. So... We may think, I don't have a lot, you know, but in fact, compared to so many people in the world, we're really the 20% or even the 10%. I mean, only like 10 or 15% of the world will go to university, you know. Do we know the feeling of hunger in our stomach? Most of us don't. Um, 
And, and we also uh, sponsor um, 25 children for school. We, have, we feed uh, 20,000 meals per year for, slum, for undernourished slum children. We have an ambulance. We do domestic violence counselling. Um, and we also have three study centres in different slum areas where we teach the children basic reading, writing, arithmetic because the schools are such bad quality that people graduate illiterate or barely able to read a Hindi billboard, which, according to the Indian government, qualifies them as literate. Um, so really, I think a lot has changed in India. Things are getting better. Um, and, you know, I never thought that I would do something like this. Like, uh, But even someone like me who doesn't have a college education, um, who was a street kid herself, is helping, has started a charity helping 2,000 people per year on the, on the income of two Americans per year. So if I can do that, imagine what you can do. Imagine the life you can save. And when you give, you know, the hand of the giver is never empty and all that is not given is lost. Actually, surveys show that if you buy something for someone else, it gives you more happiness than buying it for yourself. And I think people who have children know that that life is just, it's got to be more about more than just me. You know, when you care for someone else, it nourishes compassion and altruism in you. You have to care for yourself too. But when you care for others, what you do to others, you do to yourself. And when you reach beyond yourself, it allows you to put your suffering in perspective. Like when I first um, left the temple where I was staying and I had nowhere to stay, I was feeling kind of sorry for myself. But then people started inviting me to come and teach in jails and schools and drug and alcohol rehab centers. And suddenly I realized, you know, like, I can read and write. I have enough food to eat today. Today I have a roof over my head. I have a lot more than so many people in the world. And there is still something I can give. You know, and that just gave me a totally different take on my situation. Um... And I think sometimes we view our suffering as a problem, as something we need to, like I've been practicing all these years, you know, and I still suffer, you know, I still, I'm still a bit nuts and I can't concentrate and, you know. But actually our, our wounds can become our wealth, you know. Our compost can grow the roses of insight. And it's, if we look at people we really admire, uh, like Nelson Mandela Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, these are not people who've had an easy life. You know, Mother Teresa, she kind of, her face looked like a paper bag, you know, and she really worked hard, you know. And Nelson Mandela, he was in jail for 27 years. But the beauty of these people is they faced the suffering of life with grit and grace, and they transformed their misfortune into compassion. They allowed their wounds to give them compassion, and they healed their wounds with peace and with time. And because of their suffering, they develop this profound insight into interconnectedness and how others feel. And they became kind of like bodhisattvas, people who were able to affect great change because of the way in which they touched the heart of others. You know, that is the power of compassion. So don't view your wounds as a liability, you know, it's not like you need to inflict more wounds or go looking for suffering, but it happens. 
So understand that you are not alone in your suffering and your suffering you are not your suffering your suffering is impermanent and develop empathy you know it's it's the compassion is the salve the the balsam the ointment that soothes the suffering of the world and that only comes when you have a deep insight when you make peace with your own dark side your own wounds so in a way i feel fortunate that my father died when I was young. Of course, I wish he didn't die. But I got an insight. I woke up. You know, maybe I would b- still be asleep if he had not shown me the nature of life. So there's always a way to turn a misfortune into a fortune. So I wish you all the best in following this wondrous path. And um, if you are interested, we have online donations. Um, the brochure is in the back table on the left. And we also have a database if you want to add your email. Um, Or if you have any questions, my email is on the brochure. We we, we really do need people who who have skills in social media, PR, graphic design. Uh, Or if you know anyone who's interested in hosting a talk, um, I totally live on Dana. So it's all, you know, people say, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? I'm just one person. So if you have a way that, you can help us do that. We, we welcome it. And thank you for being such a wonderful audience and a kind host. It's really nice to see the diversity and to see this flourishing sangha, the way you support each other. Um, so if anyone has any questions, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, maybe uh, just to get started and then we'll open it up to the floor. How did you, um, how did you get started uh, in doing this? So you just went to Nagpur and, uh, and said, I want to do something? Because yeah. it's, a, it's a question that sometimes people think, you know, well, what could I do? How, how could I make a difference? Mm. And, and here you were with really no resources other than your spiritual practice in your life. How did you get started? And mm-hmm. what, what lessons that, that you can share with, <laughs> with, with, with others who, who might have that, that distant idea or vision but don't know how to uh, manifest it? Yeah. Um, you mean how I got started in starting the charity and mm-hmm. raising money? And mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just started talking about it. <laughs> I, I told friends and family what I'd seen, and they were really shocked. Um, and they started giving money, not a lot at first. The first year we had a budget of about $5,000, and we um, bought school uniforms for the girls and some books. And then it just grew from there. You know, I started making Facebook posts, I started a website just with volunteers, and gradually over time it grew. I started talking at schools and small groups like, you know, Buddhist groups and women's groups, Um, and we're still very grassroots. Um, But that's how it started, and just, just talking about how it is for people sharing stories and people being touched, Um, and and then fortunately we made an application to Buddhist Global Relief to fund our girls' hostel, 
mm. um, but they they fund they form about forty percent of our budget, mm. and the rest comes from ordinary people who just make donations when they can, mm. and often not rich people. You know, single mothers who sponsor a kid in India, Buddhist nuns, pensioners. Um, you know, normal people. And sometimes someone gives something very generous. Like one lady, her husband was Indian, so she decided to give uh, quite a bit to uh, buy land. So right now we're aiming to uh, buy land for a permanent centre because we also have a, a Buddhist temple and we do retreats and we um, we do temporary ordination for for young people. And that... We could begin with $180,000 um, because we're paying a lot of rent. So we have 80000 We need 100000 more and probably a little bit more than that. But, yeah, it just started that way, telling friends, networking, um, talking. <laughs> it's fortunate that I'm, I like to talk. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, really it's just kind of beg, borrow, you know, kind of ask people, put the net out there. I mean, generally, I think if you really want to start a charity or help people, it's probably better to connect in with people who are already working in the field to do some research and to do it in consultation with the local people so that it's a project that they're prepared to own and take, participate in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, any, uh, we can just open it up here. Any, any questions? Anything that... Uh... Wait, hang on. Oh, oh, thanks. Thanks, Amy. And, uh, yeah, wait for the mic and put it next to your lips like an ice cream cone. Um, sometimes you talk about we, mm. and sometimes you talk about you. <laughs> Who is we? Um, do you live with a group of nuns, or how does it work for you, and who is we? Okay. We is the community of people in Nagpur and myself. We have our organization has 15 employees and about 20 volunteers. There are no Western people I've met so far who want to ordain and do this kind of work. Uh, Maybe there will be in the long term, but right now it's just uh, the Indian community and myself. Yeah. And how many in the in the village that you're? So Nagpur has 3 million people and mm-hmm. 16% of them are Dalit. Mm-hmm. Dalit uh, Nagpur is the center of the Dalit heartland of Dalit activism mm-hmm. and Buddhism. But I would say a lot of people who call themselves Buddhists don't really know that much about it. They have good intentions, but they're just so busy trying to survive that they don't necessarily know that much. Some of them do. There's um, the... the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order is doing some good work there, and also the Vipassana community has retreat centers there. But generally speaking, the knowledge of Buddhism is, is a little bit lacking. Mm-hmm. So, and just just to clarify, that word Dalit, D A L I T, is a, a word for uh, those who have been uh, uh, um, untouchables or the, the lowest caste, and then. Uh, uh, Ambedkar in 1956 said, "Oh well, if you become Buddhists, you are um, you you belong in this in this order. You're no longer an untouchable. It's kind of uh, very much like what the Buddha did. Many people join the order, and sometimes even now in in other Asian uh, countries, join 
and become Buddhist because uh, that's that's one way that they can feel um, not only spiritual practice uh, and develop this spiritual practice, but it gives them a, a sense of of purpose and belonging and respect in uh, in the society. So these are the that's the population that I have works with. So out of the three million, how many you're, are you in a in a village of of a, a, a neighborhood in that, or do you have do you have um, hundreds of thousands of people saying, "Hey, help me out too"? Or how how does that work? Yeah. So we live in the city, and we do have a lot of people asking for help, and that's why we haven't bought land within eight years. <laughs> but um, we're getting there. Um, sometimes we have to say no because uh, we just don't have enough. Um, we try to choose the most desperate or deserving candidates. But usually we manage to help them in some way, yeah, directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Any, anything else? Yeah, Jim? Your um, Tibetan, uh, what are your connections uh, now? Do you have other men come in and help to do the ordinations, or do you do that all yourself? Or how, what's, what's the relationship with the broader Tibetan community? Uh, so, like I said, they don't support us. Um, and of the 14 people I ordained with, only two are left, myself and another nun. So there is not that much assistance. Uh, although we do, some, some of my Indian friends and myself go to the Dalai Lama's teachings um, now and then. Um, nuns can ordain other novices or they can ta- uh, give eight precepts. So there's, because we don't have a lasting monastic community, we just have temporary ordinations and a lay community. There's not really an issue there. Um, but we do go for Buddhist teachings now and then. Um, but generally speaking, I've received more support from Theravadans and from um, mm-hmm. the Plum Village Sangha, the Thich Nhat Hans community. Um, in fact, recently in New York uh, at Tibet House was the first time I've uh, um, been hosted by a Tibetan center in 16 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Does yeah. the Dalai Lama know about your work? He does. Um, but like when I spoke to him in... In, in front of 2,000 people about Western monastics. He was very concerned. But when I uh, addressed a letter to his office, I got a kind of negative response. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's not an issue that's been addressed so far. Although the Dalai Lama did give 100000 to save the children, to help Indian children. So he does help in some way, but mm. not Western monastics. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, before you, before we end, um, and we'll be we'll be uh, ending in a few moments. If you can stay till the end, that would be great. Um, it must be very um, exhausting uh, unless you're. Fed by your own by the nourishment of of, of the work that you do, um, how do you how do you keep going? 
Um, I think it's actually a privilege to help people and they don't feel sorry for themselves. They're kind of very connected to each other and optimistic. Um, I had a job in an insurance company for four years and that was more soul-destroying because it wasn't meaningful to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now I have hardly any money, but I feel what I'm doing is changing lives. So that gives me joy and that nourishes me. Um, and also my own, the Bodhisattva ideal, you know, the meditating on Bodhisattva, it gives me a lot of joy and energy. But I do, um, I, go, I spend about uh, 25%, 30% of my time in Australia where I go on retreat and spend time with spiritual friends, spend time with my mum and nourish myself. And I go travelling now and then so I know how to find a balance, although I'm probably, you know, doing maybe a little more than most people. But for me, it's a matter of joy. It's not a matter of uh, misery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to help others, it's, it's amazing. You know, when you know that you've changed a life, you saved a life. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I keep on um, seeing that picture of you, that big smile on your face with mm. that, uh, that boy and... Uh, yeah, it's clear that the it's very um, compelling. Just the, the the feeling of of joy that comes out of out of the service work. Yeah. So so inspiring to to have you here, and um, maybe we can all find our own ways to uh, experience that that kind of joy uh, in. In the suffering that we encounter, that suffering is a a gateway to compassion and joy. So, um, as I said, there's the the Donna basket, and for the um, any of the handicrafts, and the handicrafts are are they made by the the people that you are that you work with, or where what are they? Uh, what's that? They're handmade by Indian women. They're not from the area where I live. They're from the Self-Employed Women's Association of India, which is the largest women's union. They're fair trade. 60% of the profits goes to the maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Great. So let's close with a short um, loving kindness and dedication of, of merit. And just uh, taking in the evening the inspiration, the possibility of what you have to offer the world. And wishing well to all beings, may all beings come to the end of suffering. May all know the joy of expressing their compassion and love. May all know the highest happiness and peace. And may uh, our coming here together, any wholesomeness and merit that is created here, may it be uh, shared for the benefit of all.
Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Aya. Have a good evening and uh, um, see you soon.